0: back. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Um, before we get going here, I want to take some more time to thank the Patreon supporters. You guys are making this possible. If you have benefited from uh, this podcast at all, please go over and, and become a patron. That would be awesome. Show your support. Uh, another way you can show your support, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh please subscribe that is huge and if you want to go above and beyond please go over to apple podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment that would be huge that would be awesome you guys are the best so without further ado uh let's get into the the discussion today today i have with me another very very special guest guest i have with me dr william hasker and uh if you know that name at all you know this guy's a legend uh a little bit a little bit nervous for this one but um Let's just, let's just bring them in and get started. Dr. Hasker, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: You're welcome. It's a pleasure.
0: So uh, I know you haven't uh, – this isn't the most recent work that we're going to be talking about, but uh, it's so interesting to me. So uh, I'm so I was so glad that you agreed to come on and talk about your work on the argument uh, from reason as well as your work uh, in the emergent self. So just real quick, if I could hawk some of your books here. we got Metaphysics, Constructing a Worldview by dr william hasker uh and this is in the contours of christian philosophy and uh it's edited by by stephen evans it's a great series uh art holmes i think did the one on ethics and if you know anything about arthur holmes that guy's a legend as well and then uh, also the the emergent self and this is what we're going to be focusing most on today and uh dr hasker i think this came out in like 1999 is that right
1: correct yes Mm -hmm.
0: so it's been a while since you've been uh working on this but uh does the argument from reason? Does that is that something that, that uh, you continually think about, or is this uh, dredging up something from your past?
1: Well, it's it's important to me. To it's this is uh, to me this is one of the main arguments, the main uh, ways of reasoning that shows what's wrong with many of the contemporary naturalist and materialist views concerning the human mind and the human person. And I think it's, it's an argument which I think has gained considerable ground in certain circles, but I think it's largely ignored. Yeah. Of course, if you're aware of the uh, sort of scenario here, uh, materialism and naturalism are simply taken for granted as the right way to go by many contemporary philosophers, not all by any means, but many of them. And there's a great reluctance to pay serious attention to arguments and points of view that that challenge these ideas. And so you're in a sense you're always swimming upstream to to challenge this uh, naturalistic consensus but uh, but I think this argument from reason is one of the important ways to do that. So uh, you're right. I've, I haven't been working so much specifically on that recently, but it's definitely part of my thinking going forward.
0: Yeah, that's so encouraging to hear because uh, I, I agree with you completely. And uh, I do think this is a very important argument. And the way that you uh, have described it, the way that you've said it, it ought to go is is very important as well. So, uh, before we, we jump into the specifics, um, do you remember when you first came upon this argument? Do you know who first proposed it that you were reading or where you heard it?
1: Well, like, like many other people, I, I think I first encountered it in C.S. Lewis' um, hmm. uh, 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 work. But if you go back to the 1970s and so on, it was hard not just in the secular world, but anyway, in any case, to get people to take it seriously. Yeah. It was hard to, it needed to be formulated in some way that people could see, you know, this is a serious argument. This is a, This is not just, a, uh, there was a notable incident in which uh, Elizabeth An- Anscombe, who is a Catholic, a Christian philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, took, C.S. Lewis on in the Socratic Club at at Oxford. And uh, on that occasion, she pretty well wiped the floor with him. Hmm. Uh, Lewis was very upset about this afterwards. Uh, And uh, there is a common impression that uh, Anscombe had shown that there was nothing to this argument and we just move on. Lewis didn't think that. He tried to reformulate it, but there was certainly a need to formulate it and develop it in a, in a way that uh, showed that it obviously had some philosophical muscle to it and was mm-hmm. not just a sort of uh, half-hearted opinion.
0: Yeah. I I have heard a rumor, and I think maybe uh, Victor Reppert has has brought this up, but that, that Peter Geach, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe's husband, Defended Lewis against Anscum. Have you heard anything like that?
1: Uh I I don't know that. But if Lewis, if um Robert told you that, he's probably right because he's rehearsed searched the history more than I have. Hmm. But I, from other things that I know that Geech said, I think he would have he would have supported the argument and, yeah. and, and not his wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well,
0: uh um Dr. Hesker, did you, when you first encountered it in Lewis, what were your thoughts? Did you think, "Wow, this is a great argument," or uh, was it just kind of uh, in, intriguing, or, or did you think it failed well, right I, away?
1: I, I thought I, I found it uh, convincing. His uh, hmm. book, "Miracles," of course, I found it convincing right off, and uh, I think I was sort of nibbling around the idea. Well, uh, how can I, how can I formulate this, or how can this be formulated? In a way that people will see that it's a, a serious argument, mm. and the first uh, attempt at doing that was in uh, a little article entitled "The Transcendental Refutation of Determinism," which was yeah. uh, published in the Southern Journal of Philosophy many, many years ago. Okay, mm. <laughs> but but ever since then, I've, I've thought about it in different ways and in different lights, and uh, and I think it's. Uh, the 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 basic idea is this: that in order to make sense of what human reasoning consists of, you have to see reasoning as oriented towards a goal, of course, of reaching truth, and you have to see reasoning as guided from through rational insight mm-hmm. that is, we can grasp the premises of an argument and we can see that if those premises are true, then a conclusion follows from those premises. Now that's that's rational insight. It's, it's a capacity that we all have. We all use it to some degree. Uh, uh, logic, uh, the story, study of formal logic uh, sharpens that and develops it and shows us how to apply it. I think that you just don't have reasoning if that isn't the case. And the, what the argument shows is that if, if your thinking is simply the product of the, the atoms bashing around in your brain, to put it very crudely, mm-hmm. but if it's just the, the result of physical causes, well, those physical causes... Do not have anything to do with rational insight.
2: Right.
1: At least that's that's the way it seems, and I think it's it really is true. So uh, there's this big gulf, big gap in naturalistic or materialistic accounts of reasoning between the physical causes, which have n- no insight, no no. Intelligence, to understanding, <laughs> and the rational insight which has to be in the driver's seat, if reasoning is to be what we all take it to be. Yeah. And, I, and I think there's there's just a big gap there that it, it's real, and I think in the in the end, the only way to overcome it is to admit that the atoms bouncing around in your brain is not the whole story. There's, there's more to it than causation. So that's, it's what I think is a fundamental basic mis- mistake, a basic gap in that naturalistic, uh, materialistic worldview. So, yeah. so I think it's, it's both true and, and powerful. And the, the, Of course, the trick is to formulate it in a way that people cannot easily dismiss it, and will not uh, will not suppose that uh, it's negligible. They will admit that, acknowledge, be forced to acknowledge that it's really saying something important.
0: Yeah. Well, so, um, so a lot of people have noted the similarity between the the argument from reason, and as you and Victor Reppert have shown, it's it's really a, a family of arguments. Though you say uh, you encourage Repert that, hey, we can't lose the hardcore or the the center of the well, argument. Which,
1: well, yeah, Repert. Uh, I think Repert tends to use the term a little bit more broadly to and encompass other ideas as well. And I'm I'm not really opposed to that. Okay. Certainly, but certainly he and I are very much in agreement on the uh, the, the, the core idea here.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, well, Lord Lord, willing, he's uh, he's coming on the podcast tomorrow to talk a, a little bit about this as well too. So that'll be fun. Um, but w- when you think about uh, planning as uh, evolutionary argument against naturalism, uh, people have said you know it's a subset or it's a related argument. How do you think of? Uh, Planning as uh, E A A N in comparison to the argument from reason is it is it related? Is it uh, subset? Uh,
1: they're uh, they're related, but there's a, a different... And just for the record, I'll say I was I was promulgating this I think before uh, Planica published. I think we're we're both completely independent in coming right. to this. Right. But the the core a core idea in the argument from reason, as Victor and I develop it, is what has come to be known as the causal closure of the physical domain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which means, physica, be, simplified, physical events have only physical causes. <laughs> okay? Now, where I have a little bit of a problem with Flaniga's presentation is He doesn't, in dealing with the naturalist, he doesn't really hold their feet to the fire. Right. Causal closure. Yeah. Okay. So so he sort of allows for the possibility that uh, mental states might be effective in virtue of their mental content. Yeah. And I, I think that that makes the argument a little softer,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, g- gives the naturalists a little bit more wiggle room. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I think that's that that's the main difference. But of course, I'm I'm very glad that uh, Al has developed that argument and is getting attention and uh, calling attention to it and. Uh, because you know what he says rightly gets attention. Yeah, and people need to to think about these things. But that's that's the difference between the way he presents it and uh, what uh, what I've done.
0: I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I'm agreement, in agreement with you on that, that he does let them have a little bit too much rope there, even if he is trying to get them to hang themselves with it. But yeah, it, you need to go down to the, to the base level and say, Hey, uh, if what you, if what you naturalists are saying is true, then all of the explanations for your beliefs are, are physical. They're, they're from the laws of physics, not from the laws of reason, not from the laws of human thought. And so really you don't have a reason for holding the beliefs that you believe, including the belief in, in naturalism.
1: That's exactly right. And uh, if people once get a hold of that, they will realize they've got a problem. Yeah. You know, one, one very interesting philosopher in this connection is uh, Thomas Nagel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with his yep. uh, Nagel is, to say the least, not a Christian philosopher. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's a very outspoken atheist. In fact, he, he he lays out, he says, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the world to be like
0: that. Yeah, his most famous quote, but, probably.
1: Yeah, but still, and I give him lots of credit for this, he is unusually, uh, I mean, fantastically outspoken in seeing the holes, the flaws in this, materialist naturalist darwinist worldview Mm
2: -hmm.
1: he he thinks it's rather uh, it's rather absurd that people rely on darwinist evolution to solve all the intellectual problems that they have and and so uh, while he's he's far from being a christian or a theist he brings in stuff in his own worldview Mm -hmm that uh, makes your standard naturalistic philosopher very unhappy yeah i've right? often thought that you could take one of his books and make only minimal changes and turn it into a work of theistic apologetics totally now, now Nagel is never going to do that right but, yeah, yeah but he is showing a sensitivity to some of these ideas that many other many naturalistic philosophers just pay no attention to. No. Yeah,
0: I've I've uh, so I read through at least his his three most famous books, and uh, I'm thinking especially the View from Nowhere and um, Mind and Cosmos. And I just write there's. All my notes say, "Oh, C.S. Lewis agrees." Oh, this sounds like Lewis. Oh, this is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: right, right. And
0: it's 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 so helpful. And I I do pray for him when I read because I'm thinking, "You're you're so close. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming." <laughs> right.
1: Um, yeah. I totally agree
0: with you. Totally. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Hasker, you've explained. Um, in, in various places here, uh, throughout uh, Philosophy Christie Christi articles and, and really all over the place, that the, ardu- the the argument can be posed as a skeptical threat or an inference to the best explanation. It can also be posed in various other ways, but be- between skeptical threat and inference to the best explanation, you opt for inference to the best explanation. Can you explain uh, why, why you think it's better posed as a, uh inference to the best explanation instead of a skeptical threat? Well,
1: I, I don't know how to put it quite that I think the point is something like this that when it comes to the core issue of can we make rational inferences, the typical naturalistic view not only doesn't have a good explanation, there's no explanation at all. Right. You know, it's just a, a, com- a complete void a complete blank where an explanation is needed and i think that when when some a blank like that shows up on a point of that importance that is how can we make rational inferences. that's a really debilitating weakness Mm -hmm. uh, for for that kind of worldview now here here's well, one one version of the argument from reason that I especially like uh, is putting it in an evolutionary context. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, all all naturalist ph- philosophers want to give an evolutionary account of the mind and an evolutionary account of reasoning. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there were these. Uh, big-headed apes that uh, were figuring things out a bit, and uh, their mind, uh, somehow their minds started working a little bit better, mm. and those apes <laughs> did a little bit better in the struggle out on the savannah than the than the dumber apes, yeah. and so uh, they reproduced, and, and you have a cumulative effect here. Now, that's i I think that has to be to some extent true okay Mm -hmm. i don't i mean i i'm I'm an evolutionist i
2: don't
1: think any booms about that. i think that has to be to some extent true i don't think it can be the whole explanation for our our ability to reason yeah but it's it's got to be part of it but the trouble is that given those naturalistic assumptions evolutionary development of the mind can't work yeah and the reason it can't work is that the mental states of these apes don't have any causal effects Hmm. uh like well here's an example that i've used suppose you have a uh, a a bunch of uh, baboons and they see a saber-toothed cat sneaking up, and so they r- quick, quickly rush and take refuge in the upper branches of a tree, so the cat can't get to them. Yeah. Now, in principle, Darwin Darwinian evolution could explain that. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean the. the Apes that didn't run away when the cat, when the predator was coming, their lunch survive, right? Yeah. Okay. But this says nothing about what the apes are thinking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, are the apes thinking, "Well, let's get out of here before that that predator arrives," or are they thinking, "Isn't this a delicious meal of baboon meat?" <laughs> well, it doesn't make any difference because the, the mental content, the, the, the propositional content of their beliefs has no effect on their behavior. Yeah. And so it can't be selected for. It's invisible to natural selection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so unless, uh, unless their thoughts have some influence on their behavior, there's no way that evolutionary selection can show them the best way to think. Yeah. Or I'm uh, sorry, can can uh, select them to to think better. So, so uh, I think it's it's really ironic that a materialist theory of evolution shows that a materialist ther- theory of reasoning can't do the job. Yeah. But it seems to me that that's the case. Yeah. So, I think now that's, that's a really interesting variation of the argument from reason.
0: Well, Doctor Hesker, it, w- would you call that one a skeptical threat then?
1: No, I, I think it, I, I think it's a skeptical threat. I mean, yeah. if, if you if you well, okay, everybody uses reasoning. You know, <laughs> Christians use it, atheists use it, and even Zen Buddhists use it, but mm-hmm. sparingly. <laughs> okay. Everybody uses reason. We're not trying to get anybody to give up using reasoning. Right. But what the, that argument does uh, shows is if you hold certain materialist views about the nature of the mind and the nature of thinking, you are unable to justify the reasoning that you use. There's no... There's no way of accounting for your reasoning that makes good sense mm-hmm. and that explains how it's possible. So in that sense, it is a, it is a skeptical threat, I think.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and this is why I like your work so much. Uh, I, I read several times the Transcendental Refutation of Determinism because you you say – Just flat out, hey, this is a transcendental argument in a roughly Kantian sense. And I love that you do that. So I I came into theology and philosophy apologetics through uh, like Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, and, and just thinking about transcendental arguments. And I was kind of frustrated that I didn't see a whole lot of transcendental arguments in that literature. And so I would search for that word transcendental argument everywhere. And I found your work. And um, and as I was reading C.S. Lewis as well, and I thought, you know, Lewis kind of seems like he's doing what Van Til wanted to do in the transcendental argument. And then I saw you say the same thing. And so uh, I was really encouraged by that. And I, I think that's that's the most exciting way to take it, to say reason is this given of human experience that you cannot deny, because in order to deny reason, you have to use reason. And so you, you have to – it is presupposed in all of your reasoning, uh, you, your capacity for logical inference. And so anything that you hold – that would deny that logical inference must be let go because the logical inference is, is more foundational.
1: Well, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And I, uh, uh, Kant, Kant says, uh, you know, this is the way we think. This system of concepts and so on, mm-hmm. he argues, is, is what we need, we have to have, in order to be able to think as we do. Yeah. I'm not I'm not making a case for Kant's sure philosophy overall. Mm -hmm. But I think that's that's the way it is, certainly with uh, with reason here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well then so so then you go on and and, um you've suggested to Rappert in uh the Philosophia Christi uh symposium that uh the the argument from reason should be posed, or, or could be, or maybe best best ought to be posed as a, a two stage transcendental argument with a inference the the best explanation at the end. Do you do? You, can you recall that for us? Can you uh, explain your reasoning there?
1: Well, well, the, the okay. Um, uh, first of all, the the um, argument from reason. Uh, the first step is pointing out. That we need to be able to reach conclusions on the basis of rational insight, seeing the connection between premises and conclusion in an argument. (laughs) Uh, That's that's what Lewis is talking about, and I think it's absolutely correct. Then the second stage is to show that if we assume make these naturalistic assumptions that you know, our thinking is completely determined by the atoms bouncing around or you know that sort of thing right. Then it can't be the case that we draw conclusions on the basis of rational insight okay mm-hmm. so so the naturalistic explanation at that point is simply excluded then the, the the third stage, as I suggested at that point, is to suggest theism as the best explanation that is what we could we could say how is it that we have this capacity for rational insight and of course the capacity for moral awareness and, and other things as so Well, a theist will say, "Well, we we can have these things because we're created in the image of God, and God mm-hmm. has endowed us with these capacities." Of course, that's that's not saying how God did it, but right. it it's an important it's an account of, uh, of what what's going on here. Uh, now, you know, it, it isn't the only uh, only account. I think we mentioned previously Thomas Nagel.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: he seems he, he wants to say that there's a uh, a teleological element built into the basic structure of the universe, so the right. basic structure of, of matter. Well, uh, that's conceivable, and if that's true, then they w- that would account for for our having this rational insight, now is that a better explanation mm-hmm. than a theistic explanation? I, I don't actually think so, you know. Yeah. But it, but at least it's in the ballpark, and so mm-hmm. so we can we can discuss. Uh, of course, if if you place up as Nagel himself, unfortunately, does if you put a high priority on not having God in the then Right. <laughs> that, sort of tips the scales in his favor. But yeah. the, the point is, uh, uh, there you can have an argument about the best explanation because you do have competing explanations. Yeah. Uh, some naturalists think that they can come up with a competing explanation. And, and in that case, I think the theist has to simply go after them and say, no, this doesn't work. You're you're playing you're pulling some illegitimate moves. So, yeah. so I mean I don't I don't think the argument from reason sort of gets you to theism in one big jump. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it's a building block that uh, certainly certainly contributes something towards a theistic worldview. I give you another example. Yeah. I don't know if you're if you are familiar with uh, William Rowe. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, recently uh, passed away a few years ago, but taught uh, philosophy of religion at Purdue University for many many years, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and contributed a lot to philosophy of religion. Um, but you know, I, I sometimes thought that Bill Rowe had a pretty nice theistic. Worldview with one uh, fairly important omission. <laughs> He's an atheist.
2: Yeah, right.
1: But, but, but there are a, a lot of chunks in his worldview that uh, are a lot more comfortable uh, in a theistic worldview than in a naturalistic worldview. He, he believed in libertarian free will, mm-hmm. agent causation. I'm pretty sure he believed in objective moral values. Yeah. You know, a lot of stuff that, if you're a real hard-nosed ratchet, natu- naturalist, you're going to have a hard time living with those things. Right. But uh, So I, I think the argument for reason gives you one of those pieces yeah. that fits better in a theistic worldview, than uh, certainly than in a naturalistic worldview, than... And um, there, you. I, I think then, then you are going for the best overall explanation. At least that's one way of looking at what's going on there.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think I think uh, even though this wasn't, I don't think this was explicitly part of your project. I think you are representing what Lewis was intending to do uh, in the, the first four to, to six chapters of miracles. He, mm-hmm. you know, he lays out that, Hey, uh, the, the naturalistic worldview doesn't have any space for anything beyond uh, the laws of physics in chapter two. And then three, it's the transcendental argument against naturalism, I'd say. And then in f- uh, four, he is giving a positive case, which seems like an inference to the best explanation that reason makes sense on theism and here's how it might go about. But um, so, so I think actually, uh, your your project and the two-part transcendental argument with the inference to the best explanation actually does fit Lewis's project and what he was getting after, after all. And, and I think a lot of people miss that when they appropriate just the argument against naturalism and they miss out on the argument for theism there.
1: Well, I, I, you know, uh, the genius, and you have to, you have nothing else you're going to say, the genius of Lewis mm-hmm. was that he could take these philosophical thoughts and yeah. make them palatable to a wide range of readership because of yeah. lewis had had some training in philosophy right. but uh but not many people can you know it's a, it's a gift of god i guess really not many yeah. people are able to do what what he did in terms of making it accessible these ideas accessible yeah. uh, and uh it's it's amazing, but yeah, I certainly, I, I certainly, uh, I have no discomfort whatever. Yeah. If you compare me, compare my ideas with Lewis. If you yeah. compare my writing with his, I <laughs> my <laughs> face. <laughs> no comparison. But, uh, That's but great. Yeah, uh, his uh, uh, his thinking is not easily dismissed if you read yeah. it with care. You know? Right. I agree. No. Yeah.
0: Well, so transitioning into your, uh, your work on, uh, the emergent mind, the emergent self, right. I thought it'd be, it'd be, it'd be a good, um, transition to, to discuss Donald Davidson's, uh, anomalous, uh, monism, if, if you can recall that, uh, as well, because yeah. it, it, well, it seems like, it seems like Davidson, well, he's a naturalist and he wants to say, uh, he wants to have his cake and eat it too. It seems like he wants this, uh this ability up here this this uh this ability that transcends the physical to you know think with reasons and it sounds superficially like your project but uh yeah can you can you uh, disabuse us of that how is how is your project different and how does his fail and and fall to the argument uh, from reason I,
1: I, i'm i'm afraid i'm i i don't think uh, uh, davidson as you know called his view uh, anomalous humanism. yeah and uh and he said there are there are no psychophysical laws that is there are no laws that a certain kind of mental event is always uh connected with a certain kind of physical event and yet an individual mental event is identical with an individual physical event yeah but because of the the, the difference in uh, the linguistic differences, so to speak, and the conceptual differences in the way that we uh, conceive of these different kinds of events, they don't match up in even way. So it looks like, and, and I think this is what he's hoping to accomplish, it, it looks like he is having a situation uh, in which the mental has a certain kind of independence or at least you know it's sort of not that overly tightly connected with the physical realm but as you anticipate it doesn't work i don't think it works okay Because at least as I understand it, and I'm I'm not a big scholar of Davidson, but I think he still accepts the three core assumptions of naturalism on which the argument from reason is based. Uh, One of these is the first of these is what I call mechanism, Mm -hmm. and the basic idea here is that the basic laws and forces of physics have Nothing to do with purpose or goals or objectives Okay, as our Frederick Ruppert once said The rocks in an avalanche do not go where they go because it would be a good idea for them to go there
2: <laughs> okay.
1: right. uh, good ideas purposes have nothing to do with it. Okay, and I think that that's That has the advantage of being true not only of our present physical sciences but any any physics we can imagine in the futures, yes. the science that threw that out would no longer be physics as we know it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, no, Aristotle's physics did have goals It had final causes. That's been gone for hundreds of years. Right. Okay. So that's one. Is the the, uh, uh, the physical is mechanistic. Number two is. The causal closure of the physical, which means there are no non-physical causes that produce physical effects. Mm-hmm. Nothing non-physical acts upon the physical realm to make it go differently than if we're, there were not that non-physical cause. Yeah. Okay, and that's that's a core dogma, and and uh for davidson uh all cause all causation uh involves strict laws and you only have strict laws in in the physical realm yeah. okay then the third uh, assumption is that the mental supervenes on the physical which means yeah. you can't have two different mental states uh matching the same identical physical state. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have a change in the mental state, there has to be a change in the physical state. Uh, Davidson embraces that. Well, if you have those three assumptions, then you're set up, uh, you're right in the crosshairs for the argument from reason. So I'm sorry to say that. I don't think Davidson uh, escaped from that at all. I mean, uh, but uh, incredibly more to be said about Davidson than that. Sure. But that's
0: sure. a quickie. Well, I I think you're right. And I I think you did a great job in, in pointing out that he still holds those three uh those three tenets. When it comes to uh so you've argued forcefully against the causal closure uh of the physical. When when you say that the the physical is, is not closed, uh I guess yeah, we could say the physical is open. Like what what does that mean? What does it mean that the physical is not closed?
1: Well it means that uh, it means that the physical realm, and primarily, I think we're talking about processes in in our brains and mm-hmm. in, in our brains that it's open to being influenced by our mental processes. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, like so, if I if I see that uh, saber tooth cat, cat Uh, down in the ravine uh, moving around in a uh, a, uh, surreptitious way I say to myself hey that guy is looking at me (laughs) I gotta get out of here Mm -hmm. and that makes things happen differently in my brain than if I didn't have that thought okay Yeah. and the thing in as in an explicit process of reasoning, I, I see the premises of an argument and I say, oh, well, if that's true, then so and so. And that makes something happen in my brain that wouldn't happen otherwise. Okay, yeah. so, so there's a, a, an openness, at this point at least, of physical events to non-physical causes mm-hmm. if, if that's the case then my thinking that my my thinking that that predator is dangerous does have a selective advantage because it, it tells me i better get out of there <laughs> yeah. and uh, uh and uh, so yeah, it means that it means that the physical domain is is not a totally closed system.
2: Yeah.
1: Now people say, uh, "Well, we have no evidence for this. Uh, we have incredibly poor evidence for the fine details of what's going on inside of our brains, hmm. but we don't even we don't know what." Physical processes are needed barely for consciousness. Right, that's not known. You know, it's a it's still it's a continuing argument that's been going on for decades. Right. You know?
0: It's not so, the pineal gland, Doctor Hesker. What's that? It, it's not the pineal gland after all.
1: Well, <laughs> it could be. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. But. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Descartes was very ignorant at that point, but so are we still.
2: Right.
1: You know, it's it's striking. There, we're learning so much, mm-hmm. and that's it's it's great that we're learning it so. But there's so much we don't know. So uh, that we have not learned. So while we cannot show empirically that thoughts have a physical effect in our brain we we absolutely can't show that they don't <laughs> yeah right? and uh, and uh, i think the arguments we're talking about gives us very good reason to mm. to to believe that our thoughts thoughts do have physical effects in the brain yeah. yeah now if if you want to if you want to go beyond that and talk about uh, uh, psychokinesis and lifting a book off of the table by mind power that's that's a different thing i right. I'm not entirely a skeptic about that either, but mm. uh, but I've never been able to do it so.
0: <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, if you can't but, do it, right. then yeah, the rest of us are are not going to do it either
1: yeah, well, uh, maybe somebody can but
0: uh, <laughs> yeah
1: yeah right yeah but, yeah yeah but but uh, the Uh, I mean, what we're talking about is mind-body interaction. Uh Uh, The the state of our bodies, our brains, has an effect on the way, on our thoughts, our conscious experiences. Everybody admits that. Right. But vice versa. Our thoughts have an effect on what's going on in our brains and therefore on the the, uh, signals that are sent to our nerves and muscles and what happens in the world yeah
0: mm-hmm. well th- that might be a perfect uh segue right into into your project so uh which i i designed and i reasoned and i wanted to do that i planned for this so um how how is your emergent self how is that different than like the supervenience that is uh inherent or explicit in davidson's uh anomalous monism
1: well The uh, supervenience so far gives you the effect of the physical on the mental. That is, your your mental state. Uh, I mean, your physical st- state of your brain has a supervening mental state.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so far, that's, that's you know, uh, uh, it's not too much your problem. But the... Uh, uh, what what i want to argue for and, and what dualists have believed i guess forever <laughs> is that your mental state also influences your physical state and, and in this case the state of your brain so it's a it's a two-way interaction
2: mm-hmm.
1: and not simply that your mind or your mental state is a reflection of your phys- physical state so yeah it's uh you might say it's evening the score between the mental and the physical in a sense yeah
0: yeah yeah. well dr hesker is your is your uh, emergent dualism is that a a full-blown substance dualism or is it more of a is it a property dualism
1: no it, it's a substance dualism yeah. the, the mind is uh, uh, the mind is a thing and the uh, one of the main arguments um, for that is one that we haven't talked about. But uh, it's another argument that I like a lot. It's the unity of consciousness argument. Yeah. And here's the idea. I mean, well, Leibniz put it very nicely. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, suppose you have a machine that can think. Okay, this this is the materialistic theory, which is retreating. So, you have a machine that can think. Well, you can imagine this enlarged, much bigger, so that you can walk around inside it, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: like, say, a a, uh, windmill. Okay. Well, as you walk through this windmill, this thinking machine, what you find is parts pushing against each other. You have physical causes, the physical things pushing, but there's nothing there that can be a thought. There's nothing going on there that can be a thought. And says, for, for the thought, you have to have a simple thing. There has to be some one thing that has the thought as a whole. Just yeah. like right now, I'm, I'm looking at your picture on my screen here. And, okay, you have some you know, dark hair. You have some impressive uh, mustaches. <laughs> Thank uh, eyebrows, you. And, uh, you know, your, your teeth are white and so on and so forth. But it's not like there's one bit of me that sees your yeah. eyebrow and another bit that sees your mustache and another b- bit that sees. There is one, has to be one thing mm-hmm. that grasps that whole picture of you at once. Yeah. And also it sees the picture of myself beside you and all the other stuff that's around here. So there has to be a single thing that is doing the experiencing. You can't break up the experience and assign assign each bit to some one little bit of your brain. That doesn't work, you know? As I've sometimes told students, it's like uh, you, you gave uh, uh, an exam to your class and uh, there were 20 students. Each of them got one question right on the exam.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You yeah. <laughs> said, sorry guys. You all blew it. And so he said, well, look, we got all the questions right. What more do you want? <laughs> well, that doesn't do it. Okay, yeah. there has to be some one person who had all of this information. And there has to be some one thing, one entity that has all of this experience that I'm not now having.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and, and that is the mind or soul the me, the mental substance
2: yeah
1: that that is i say generated or produced by the brain but it's not identical with the brain now that yeah. that's a that's a whole different uh different uh argument than the argument from from reason
0: yeah
1: but I think it's—I think it's a very important argument. and I think it's a good argument.
0: Yeah, I think it's—I think it's very good too. And and my reading of Kant prepared me to see that in your work, that Kant calls it the transcendental unity of of apperception. I think, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's yeah, it's the unity of consciousness argument that's been come to know now. And and then uh, my friend Brandon Rickabaugh is working on the phenomenal unity or the unity of phenomenal consciousness as well, and taking it even further. Um, Doctor Hesgar, how so? I I totally agree with you. We need to have the subject who experiences things as a, as a, as a unity. And it's kind of a, it's a philosophy of mind version of the, the uh, binding problem in, in neuroscience, I'd say. Um,
1: It it is, it is related to that. In in neuroscience, the question is what you have all this stuff going on in the brain, uh, in different parts of the brain Mm -hmm. and what pulls it all together. Right. Right. uh, and it may be that the uh, and, and uh, as as you know, what they find out, I and mean, they they the people have looked for this. Right. Where is this place in your head that all of this information comes together? And they come up with a blank. There doesn't seem to be any answer to that. Right. So maybe that what what is going to pull it together, or what's going to. Unified an experience has to be the conscious mind. I, yeah. I think I think that's probably right. So yes, that's that's a very definite uh, sort of empirical example of this issue. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, so then when it when it comes to your project, how how is it that the mind is produced by the brain? And and then how can the, the brain or how can the mind operate at a different level? Uh, a, a different level of laws, the, law, the level of reasons when, when it's produced by the brain, which operates on the, the physical laws.
1: Well, take faith. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I mean, right, this is, and, and the part of the answer is that uh, for this kind of strong emergence, yeah, there isn't an answer is that we don't have an answer to how does it work? You know, right. If, if we had an answer to that, then, then that would be uh, kind of a reduction, you know, you'd be able to say, well, okay, you turn this crank and it <laughs> comes out here. You know? Right. Right. But, but, uh, but, uh, that's, uh, uh, the fact is it, it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I, i I spent some time thinking about the way in which uh, which physical object objects produce fields, yeah, fields of physics. Right. Or say a, a black hole. Well, for a black hole, at least according to some accounts, okay, you start off with a very massive star or. Uh, several stars joining together, but maybe may, may just one very massive star. But it come; it becomes so powerful and, and generates such an intense gravitational field that the matter, the physical stuff, matter, the material stuff that that was there to begin, made up the star, is. In effect, squeezed out of existence, yeah. and what you've got left is a super intense gravitational field from which nothing can escape. <laughs> now, if you ask me, how does that work? Uh, go ask somebody. <laughs> but, uh, but this yeah. is—I mean—it's uh, something that that does happen. You know, yeah. we now photograph one of these guys, black yeah. holes. So. Yeah. So the way in which matter, uh, the material stuff, when rightly organized, produces a new thing, a mental object, a mental entity, that's ter- terrifically mysterious. Yeah. And if you, if you say, "Well, that's, that sounds kind of fishy, you know? OK. This is not the first idea that would have come to your mind when yeah. you started to think about this. It's only when you've tried a lot of others, yeah, they don't work.
0: they all sound fishy, yeah
1: this begins to look better than the other.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so well that, that's yeah
0: yeah dr heker so so on on your emergent um dualism, if I were to if I were to clone you and uh and I wanted you to come here, teach over here at Ted's or something, whatever I wanted, I wanted you, I wanted to have more podcasts with you. I want to clone you. And I got all the uh, physical parts of your brain identical. Would, would like Dr. William Hasker would, would another you emerge out of that with the same memories? Or is there, is once, once there's emergent soul or self up here, is that uh, it, uh like non-reproducible just by getting the, the physical no, stuff?
1: I don't know whether uh, part of a part of me or just duplicates. Mm. Uh, I'm just asking for interest.
0: Uh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Hasker, I, I missed the question. It broke up a little bit.
1: Uh, well, uh, you're going to make this duplicate, Hasker. The uh, question will yeah. judge on your part, if I may say <laughs> so. But if you're, you're going to make this duplicate of me uh using these other brain parts do they do they originally come from my brain or or some other source
0: um another source maybe maybe thinking like davidson's yeah, exactly. swamp man thing they're just like okay. like yeah produce them 3d print well, them maybe
1: in, in any case once my mind/soul slash comes into existence that's a unique individual okay okay, okay. Uh, now if you if you got um if you got all the parts uh, sufficiently similar, sufficient assembled in the right way, yeah, uh, then you might get a, a close duplicate, you know. And
0: uh, would he have all your
1: memories? You think what?
0: If if what? I got the physical stuff in the in the right place, would he would, would this duplicate Hasker have the same memories as you have?
1: they would be pseudo memories because he right. wouldn't uh, but I but i I suppose so because I mean memories we, we have every reason uh, we, we know memories are encoded in the brain interesting so uh, so if you could reproduce that co- coding then my duplicate would think of himself yeah. as having had those experiences yeah. but he'd be wrong you know, right he, he wouldn't would have really any have yeah Yeah. So. Yeah, so uh, you could, and I'm, I'm, I don't mind my saying so, but I'm glad that you aren't actually able to do this. Right? But, uh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but you could, if you were successful, you could produce a simulation or a simulacrum of mm-hmm. me. Okay. But you couldn't produce me.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Well. Yeah. Oh. So, so uh, closing up here, Dr. Hester. Thanks so, so much for all your time here. I just wanted to, to follow up on on your last chapter here of the emergent self. Um, how might um, how might our minds survive the the death of the brain?
1: Well, in the, the, the theory that I'm that I'm forward, this is where the the substance dualism aspect becomes important. Okay, mm-hmm. when uh, yeah, when my uh, well. Sorry, back up. Hmm. The important thing is that the mind/soul is a new thing, a new substance. It's yeah. distinct from the mind that generates it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, here is where uh, a- another place where it has an advantage over quote Christian materialist views. Okay?
2: Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: there, there really there really is a, a an emergent soul distinct from the, the brain and body well then it is certainly logically possible that that emergent mind should continue to exist even when the body disintegrates yeah and 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 certainly god could preserve it in power preserve it in existence even after the body has perished and could re-embody it give it a new body a resurrection body mm-hmm. in which its life could continue yeah there's there, there, just to take a second here mm-hmm. there's some interesting empirical evidence on this in some i i don't know if you're into uh, near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences or any of that.
0: I haven't researched there's, it a ton. No. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a, a pretty, a pretty large, large body of evidence of people whose consciousness has apparently continued, yeah. and they have become aware, been aware of things and learned things during periods when the normal physical functions, brain functions, that sustain conscious life under ordinary circumstances are are not functioning. And so if if those incidents are verified, and and there are a lot of them, there's a lot of evidence, those instances are verified, then that would be the evidence that the mind-soul can, can, it's capable or is, it's possible for it to go on functioning at least for short short periods of time yeah. without the normal bodily support. Now, I don't want to lean too heavily on this. Right. Uh, and, and The rest of what I want to say about the emergent self is does not depend on it, but I think it's very suggestive, to say the least.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that's I, I love the way you're thinking about it too. That you don't want to lean super uh, heavily, but it is really interesting and it's an important point to to think about. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, actually, I'm I'm sorry. I'm gonna ask one last question, Doctor Hasker. Do do you give a time period for when the uh the mind or soul first em- um em- emerges? Is there you know do you think like the first trimester or is that just totally speculation outside well, your?
1: Yeah, I mean it would be. Sometime during the gestation of the uh, of the, the embryo, fetus, and so on, okay. I, would, I, I wouldn't I uh, wouldn't like to, you know, pin that down. Right. Uh, uh, I, it doesn't strike me as especially plausible that it's there from the moment of conception. Okay. That I, you have no nervous system, no brain, or nothing. So, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm not going to give you a calendar and tell you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, there might be a Sorites paradox or something there too. Um, Well, Doctor Hasker, this has been seriously an, an honor for me. I love your work. I, I love, especially your use of transcendental language and your your the way you reason, the things that you think about. I think are so interesting. Your work on the Trinity is really interesting as well. Um So it, it it's genuinely been an honor, honor. Thanks so much for coming on my podcast.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, as we, as we close out here, uh, one more one last time, just a couple books I grabbed off the shelf. Uh, uh, if you want to read more, hear more from, from Dr. Hasker, Metaphysics, Constructing a Worldview, The Emergent Self, um, and this is really what we were talking about today. He's got his stuff on the argument from reason in here, as well as The Emergent Self. So uh, I definitely recommend these books. These are awesome. Uh, Lord willing, we can talk about this uh, some other time, but for now, it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.